Good evening, Noxology. My name is Leo, and I'm a member here. And tonight's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of these in the back. We offer them for free. It's our gift to you. Um, just don't return them. Um, it, you can also look online or follow us on, a, on your Bible app as well. And again, tonight's scripture reading comes from chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, with justice, sorry, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Hello. It's good to be back with you guys. Uh, for those of you who may, be, who may be new, joining us for the first time, uh, my name is Steve, lead pastor here. It's good to have you with us. Uh, so for this fall, we've been walking through 1 Peter. We're going to pick that back up uh, come the new year, but we're going to pause for Advent season. Advent means arrival. And so we're starting week one of Advent uh, today. And the reason why we chose the book of Isaiah uh, to go through as a church, one is because just generally speaking, the prophets, I think, are the genre and the scriptures that people tend to be the least familiar with, or one of the least you know, familiar with uh, genres in scripture. Uh, but number two, the people that Isaiah is talking to are a people who are in a period of waiting, just waiting and anticipation. I, I think if you had a word to sum up 2020, it would be waiting, right? Just like waiting for everything that's going on, whether it be with the pandemic or in our political square, or you know, even just as we're trying to navigate, like how do we see family or not see family over the holidays? Do we wear masks? Do we not wear masks? You know, how long do we quarantine? All these things, we're just waiting uh, for it to be done. And so as we see how Isaiah addresses this people who honestly are in a period of much deeper darkness than we are now and have much greater longings than, than, than we do now, um, God's going to help us, I think, learn to, learn, to, to learn to wait well and to be good citizens of his kingdom. And so... Um, just to kind of on-ramp things, you can see here, and uh, it's, it's very poetic, so it sticks out in verse 2. Isaiah says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So who here remembers being afraid of the dark when you were a child? Hands up. Anybody? Am I the only one? Okay. Who here is still afraid of the dark? Okay, maybe, okay, all right, at least one, one, one kindred spirit here, okay, and so I, I still remember in, in my childhood going outside and 
I walked outside with my dad, and it was a you know it was a very dark night, and my backyard had no fences around it, and there were you know a bunch of trees, and so I feel like you know anybody could come in. There was nothing keeping people out. I just remember being a little kid walking out back, and suddenly becoming terrified. And I was terrified, one, because I thought, like, you know, ghouls or ghosts were going to come out from the trees. But then also, for some reason, I was scared of the moon. I don't know why exactly. I think it was something to the effect of, like, it was this allegedly lifeless rock up there. But somehow it was glowing, you know, so who, who can explain that? It had this face on it that kept staring at me. And so I tried to you know, hide my face from the moon, but I, like, just kept feeling it stare on my shoulder. And so I just I said to my dad, like, Dad, can we, can we, please, can we please go inside? Can you take me inside? Why? Because the dark's scary. The dark's scary. And, you know, it's not just as kids when we're afraid of things that go bump in the night, but even as adults, we continue to be afraid of the dark, right? Um, More of a metaphorical darkness, right? Darkness out there, things that we're afraid of in the world, or darkness within, like demons that we have inside of us, or, or shame that we carry. And Um, What's beautiful about this passage is Isaiah teaches us um, how God meets us in our darkness. And so as we go through this, I I would like you all to take just a couple seconds here to think about, uh, you can frame the question, you know, one of two ways. One, just think about what is it you are afraid of? What is a particular fear that you have? Everyone's afraid of something, right? Um, So what's a fear that you have? Or... Uh, what, is, what is a darkness that's currently besieging you? So it could be something without, so maybe something with a relationship or um, you know, something with your health or something with your job, or it could be something within, right? Like a, a habit you can't seem to kick or just some, something going on internally. What, what is darkness that seems to be engulfing you? And I think as you can put a finger to it, that will help you in more concrete terms see, okay, how does God meet you in your darkness? So this is less abstract and more concrete. And so um, all we're going to do is just ask one question as we walk through this passage line by line and just simply, how does God meet us in our darkness? Okay, how does God meet us in our darkness? And Isaiah will show us a few ways that that, that God does this. Okay, so uh, picking up in verse one. So this is Isaiah speaking to the people. So Isaiah is one of the heavyweight champions of the Old Testament prophets. And in Isaiah's job description as a prophet, uh, the main thing he's charged to do is just to speak God's word to God's people. That's his main thing he's called to do. So Old Testament prophets didn't primarily foretell the future like a lot of people think, although they did sometimes, but he's simply just telling God's people what God wants to speak to them. Now, Isaiah, he was a great prophet, but his congregation, on the other hand, was a a catastrophe. There's a common refrain we see throughout the scriptures, God coming to his people and the, the, the Speakers that he sends are often great, but his people are a disaster. It's often no less true, you know, of our church today, although the, the speaker is equally a disaster, right, as, as the congregation. So Isaiah is coming in to, to speak to God's people who are a mess. And he says in verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So when we're reading this passage, often we tend to just you know, fly by this part because we want to get to the handles Messiah, you know, for us the child is born, us the son is given in verse 6. But if you fly past verse 1, you miss like the richness of what's going on in this passage. And so why does Isaiah describe the people who are in Zebulun and Naphtali as people who are in anguish 
and gloom. And the reason is twofold. So one is because of the geography of Israel. So Zebulun and Naphtali, they were in the northernmost part of Israel. And, and they had the Sea of Galilee on one side and they had the Mediterranean Sea on the other. And so because they had bodies of water on either side and they were up here, when invading armies you know, would come around the, the Sea of Galilee and come down to attack, Zebulun and Naphtali were on the front doorstep, basically. So anytime an invading army came in to Israel, which happened all the time, Zebulun and Naphtali, the people in this Galilee region, would be attacked. And so, I mean, imagine today knowing just as you go to sleep at night, there's a group of vicious marauders, you know, like right outside of your neighborhood. And at any moment, they may come in and take you and your loved ones off and do whatever they please with them. Like, that would terrify you, right? In Isaiah's day, Assyria had recently actually come in and taken these people off in exile, and so this is, you can see why they're described as people who are in gloom and anguish. But it's not only the darkness of the Assyrians who, who have been tormenting them, but also there is darkness within. So um, because Zebulun and Naphtali, in large part, why the Assyrians came was this was one of God's ways of judging them and waking them up. Because after many pleas to repent and come back to him, they insisted on going their own way. This isn't just little things. I mean, they had fallen into deep um, materialism and substance abuse, and they were even, some of them were even sacrificing some of their children uh, to local deities. And so to wake them up, God allows judgment to come upon them. But so what was the case for these people is it's not just like they were tormented from the outside, but there is a, the, these regions were associated with a lot of shame among Israel's people. And so to, to sum all this up, when Isaiah speaks this word of hope into God's people, this is a people who you could say are utterly broken by the darkness of this world. And so the, the first thing that we see, but yet it's in this brokenness that, God's meet, that God meets them. And so here's the first thing we see about how does God meet us in our darkness? The first thing we see about how God meets us in our darkness is he meets you in your darkness. Like it's so implicit in this passage that we tend to miss it. But can you imagine if he didn't? Right? I, I think a lot of times we tend to believe he doesn't meet us in our darkness when we feel alone or we feel so ashamed. As, as Alyssa mentioned before, that worship song, we tend to just feel so alone. But here is God's proof that, no, it's actually... Often in your moments of deepest darkness and despair, that my beauty has the greatest chance to shine in your life. And we have to be so careful because we tend to project onto God human-like qualities, right? And so because we know for us, when we are either undergoing suffering or when we ourselves are the reason for the suffering in other people's lives, even our best human relationships, they have a limit. So either there's a limit with how much somebody is willing to tolerate or to put up with, you know, when you just can't get it together, you know, if you complain enough, if you betray enough, eventually, even those who love you a lot are going to leave you. Or even if the people who love you want to help you, they're limited in their capacity because they don't have what it takes to, to carry the full weight of your soul. But what God's saying here is, I'm not like any other human relationship. It's actually in your either moments of shame, the things that you'd be terrified of people to learn about, or your moments of deepest despair. That's where my heart longs to meet you the most. And so I, 
I hope for you guys that God is not just an abstraction that you come to maybe sing some songs about on Sunday, but that you experience him as a real like abiding presence in your life who meets you when you're alone. And for those of you who are, are newer to this church, I just want you to know because God is a God who meets those who are in darkness, this is a church where it's okay to not be okay. Because here we're not going to put on a plastic smile, pretending that everything's fine, you know, just because it's the Christmas season. And for those of you who are members in our church, I hope that, especially because the Christmas season, you know, for some it's great, for others it's not so great. Uh, my encouragement to you guys, especially for those of you who are feeling more down, is not to run and to pull back, but to actually open up with a few people in this community because it's one of the ways that God delights to meet you in, in your darkness. Okay, so that, that's the first thing we see. Um, it, it's very basic, but in some ways it's the most profound because, like, what if God didn't? But God actually meets us in our darkness. Okay, number two, how, do, how, does God, how does God meet us in our darkness now that we know what he does? So we're going to read through uh, verses two through five, and two things to notice. The first thing I want you guys to notice is notice the, the tense, the past tense that, I, that Isaiah uses. So um, verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On them light has light shone. Verse three, you have increased its joy. Okay, they are glad when they divide the spoil. And then at the end of verse four, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So notice Isaiah is talking about a future event, but he's speaking about it as if it's already happened. Because Isaiah is so certain of, God, of God's promises that when you speak of, God's, of what God will do, you can speak of it as if it's history. Because that's how certain you can be that God will come through with what he says he'll do. It's, it's amazing. So first, just he's speaking about it as if it's already happened because God will do it. But number two, notice as we go through here, who is the acting agent in lifting these people out of darkness? Is it the people or is it God? And it's, it's God. Spoiler alert. Okay, so notice verse two. The people who are in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So notice Isaiah doesn't say, you know, out the, the light of their inner soul burst forth. Or light like came out like a fountain out of the land. No, light had to dawn onto the land of the people. Verse 3, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. So the image here is people reaping a harvest of something they had nothing to do with. So reaping a harvest or dividing spoil after a, a military victory would be like the modern equivalent of experiencing a massive and unexpected windfall at Christmas. So say, imagine in your company, your boss calls you into their office, and you walk in and they tell you, hey, you know, one of our departments, it's not the department you're in, uh, but they had a really good year. And you actually had nothing to do with what they accomplished, what they produced, but I'm just grateful that you're in this company, and so I want you to receive, you know, some of the benefits of, of what happened. And so for this Christmas, I'm going to give you a bonus of $800,000. That would make you happy, would it not? Yes, it would. You'd have wings on your feet, okay? Even though you had nothing to do with it, you're experiencing this massive windfall. This is what's being described here for these people. They had nothing to do with it, but God's giving them this, this incredible harvest. Okay, verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So um, for these people, like this language of oppression... 
is not metaphorical. Um, so, so they knew that their family members experienced slavery when they were in Egypt, and currently a lot of them are experiencing you know, s- slavery and oppression at the hands of the Assyrians. And I, I think for maybe some of you in here, um, I don't think many of us though, but for those who have actually experienced like real oppression, Language like this and a promise like this elicits so much more emotion and hope than I think we're accustomed to reading into this. Like, so, so this winter, I'm reading through The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabella Wilkerson, that Pulitzer Prize winning book about the uh, great African-American migration throughout the 20th century. It's like 600, 6 million African-Americans migrating out of the South. That's a massive number. Um, a lot of it not even documented or talked about until recently. And the reason is because their lives were so horrible. I mean, and she gives like real life biographies, like following these people's stories, like reading it, it it makes you want to slam your fist into a wall because of what has happened and continues to happen to people in our nation. Even though they didn't have a guarantee of what would happen in northern cities and western cities, they left because it had to be better than the oppression that they were experiencing in the south. And what God's saying here is this yoke that is digging into your shoulders, like you, it's tangible for you. And the rod that beats your back, it will be splintered and decimated. You're not going to feel it anymore, either on your back or in the ache of your heart. And I'm going to be the one who does it. Okay, it's not up to you to do this, but I, the Lord of hosts, will do this for you. And then verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So don't think, oh, this is a pile of eight boots or something. Like I just did a quick uh, Google search, you know, how many people are currently in some form of armed services in the world. And so as a low estimate, it's over 20 million people. That's a lot of boots. If you imagine over 20 million boots put into a pile, along with any piece of machinery or technology that can be used for war, all of this put into a pile and burned. So what God is saying is any mechanism of war, be it so in the nations or even think about war that you may experience behind the the doors of your home or a war going on inside your own head, all of it is is going to be burned away completely and you won't have to deal with it anymore. And so in short, what God is saying is, how do I meet you in your darkness? It's not you, ultimately, that has to worry about dealing with it. And this is such good news because this completely goes against everything in our culture. And please don't think you're immune to this because every movie you watch, podcast you listen to, quote-unquote social media influencers online, it's, it's, it's it's a different version of the same thing, which is you have what it takes within you. So if you listen to your inner voice, come on, like you can do it. Yeah, you might fall down, but keep going. Don't listen to naysayers, blah, 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 blah. But the point is, is, is the onus is always on you. Okay, you have to defeat your inner demons. You have to overcome obstacles that are in your path. But the beautiful news about the gospel is God actually loves you enough to say, you can't do it. You can't do it. And so I'm actually going to do it, do it for you. And so just what I, I want to, to encourage you guys with is, like, if you are 
if you're facing something in your life right now where you just don't really know, like, how can I overcome this? Or you're going through pain. There, there's nothing godly about keeping the tears at bay and putting on a stoic front, pretending like you have it all together. You're like, what God, actually, what God actually asks you for is for your weakness. The, the great 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he said something to the effect in one of his sermons. He says, God doesn't ask you for your strength. He has enough of that on his own. No, instead, he asks you for your weakness because he has none of that. And his power is made perfect in your weakness. And so run to the God instead who can actually fight for you on your behalf rather than trying to do it and muster up the strength on your own. Okay, so God meets you in your darkness, but he doesn't just meet you. He says, it's not up to you. I will do it for you. And then verse 6, he says, okay, here's this great hope that I've been talking about. So incredible harvest, dividing the spoil, staffs, splintered, boots, garments, bloody garments rolled up into the fire. How am I going to bring about this great hope that that I'm talking about in the future as if it's already happened? Verse 6, circle the first word, like, Figuratively speaking, circle the first uh, word in verse 6. What is it? For. For. This is how these promises are going to come about. And then what does he say? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. So in other words, the answer to the most intractable and prevailing problems of humanity is a baby. Okay, I love the wisdom of God because it looks like foolishness to us. And so what does he say about this child? It says, the government will be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the way this is described, it's, um, Isaiah's readers would have recognized it as similar language and meter and so forth of a coronation ceremony of a king. And so when you, when you, read, when you read this, it may... It may have a little bit different meaning than you're accustomed to. So, for example, wonderful counselor, especially in the West, we tend to think of a therapist sitting on the, the couch with us, you know, and just listening to us. And yeah, God's incredibly empathetic, but that's, that's not what he's talking about here. So when he says wonderful counselor, this is courtroom language. And so the name here for wonderful counselor actually literally translates miraculous sage or full of mighty works wisdom teacher. So imagine somebody who's brought into the courtroom because he or she has so much wisdom and they're able to assimilate like all this information and connect all the dots and then give perfect strategy and counsel and advice to the greatest leaders in the land. So he gives incredible wisdom, like in the throne room, like directing and overseeing everything. That, that's what it means. That's what he means by wonderful counselor. So mighty God, uh, Isaiah's readers probably wouldn't have heard this as this king is going to be literally God. Because ancient Near Eastern kings were often identified in a representative way with the gods that they served. And so how they would have read it, okay, is this somebody would be so, they, they would represent the almighty God in what they do. And God's might would be seen through him. Okay, everlasting father, so his rule will go on forever, forever. But he's a father, he's not just a king who rules subjects, but he's a father who rules with compassion and tenderness. And then prince of peace. So maybe a better way to translate that would be like head of state pr- prince or head of, head of state peace. And this, this word for peace here, so don't 
over, overly psychologize it, just thinking like, oh, I have you know, inner equilibrium. When he, when he says peace here, he's not just talking about the absence of conflict, but the active presence of good. And so imagine as if you're 60 years old and you're diagnosed with a fast-moving cancer. And then it's not just that the cancer is cured, but your body is restored to the vigor of your 20-year-old self. Okay, or you're in, you're in a broken relationship you know, with, with uh, somebody who used to be a really good friend or a really good family member. It's not just that you've forgiven each other, but that relationship is now much deeper and closer and more intimate than it ever was. Because it's not just the removal of the bad stuff, it's the active presence of good. So this prince is going to bring about such goodness and flourishing in the nation. And the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, so it's just going to keep going and going and going. On the throne of David, that's a reference to God's promise, which you all should have much greater appreciation of since we spent like 27 months in the book of Samuel, (laughs) okay? Uh, To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. He'll never make a bad or an unjust decision. He'll actually be able to carry it out. It's just gravy upon gravy upon gravy from this time forth and forevermore. And so remember how we said Isaiah describes what will happen with such certainty that he can speak about it as if it's in the past. And what's amazing is for the church, like what was the future for Israel is our history. Because what Isaiah is talking about will happen has already happened. So sometimes when Isaiah gives prophecies, you you see it fulfilled in the time of Isaiah or in the time of the people he's writing to. But here, there's no one who comes along who's actually this amazing sage counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, until who, of course, Jesus. And what's incredible about Jesus is when you read about him coming onto the scene, and Matthew's uh, the one who really draws this out. If you you have your Bible and you turn to Matthew chapter 4, so after Jesus, he defeats, uh, he's, he fights temptation successfully in the desert. So he's like the true Israel overcoming temptation where Israel failed. And then in verse 13, it says, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And so when Isaiah says this great king who's going to come and it's going to come through the northern kingdom, it's going to be Jesus who does this. And then Jesus actually comes in through that northern kingdom saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand because he is this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And so this light that is going to dawn on the people dwelling in a land of deep darkness is Jesus. There's this beautiful passage in, Roman, in uh, Revelation chapter 21 where John the author is describing the city that we're going to dwell in for all, for all those who belong to Jesus. And in verse 23 it says, And the city that will dwell in has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God illumines it, and its lamp is the Lamb. So Jesus is this wonderful, marvelous light that has dawned. And in his light, nothing will ever decay, nothing will ever die. And if you are in him, the end of your life will not be darkness, but it will be light. And so the the call of Isaiah here is, when it comes to Jesus being these things that he's describing, is to actually 
practice that. So as the wonderful counselor, his wisdom is unparalleled. Listen to him. As the mighty God who defeats his enemies, his strength is unrivaled. Hide behind him. As the everlasting father, I know a lot of you guys have fathers who have failed you, be it through neglect or abuse or just their own limitations. But Jesus is the fatherly king who actually, he he adores you. He never withholds tenderness from you. You don't, have to, you don't have to worry about how he's going to treat you. He always comes at you with compassion. He, he never fails to deliver on his promises. And Prince of Peace, he's the one whose government will reign forever and ever. So follow him. As Sam Albury says, you know, there's often a lot of talk about being on the right side of history. It's only actually when you follow Jesus that you can know you're never going to be on the wrong side of history. Because it's only the government of Jesus that's going to go on and on and on forever and ever. So God, he meets you in your darkness. He does it for you. You don't have to do it. He gives you not just teaching, but he gives you a person, Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And then finally, at the end, this is my, as I was reading this and studying this this week, this was my, my favorite line. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so it's not just God's commitment to you, or God's promise to you, but it's his zeal. And so think of the all-consuming desire and love that a mother has for her child. And when she sees her son or daughter in pain, without even half a heartbeat, she runs to the child to care for them. Or if you think about a, a good husband, like the righteous anger and defensiveness that's going to well up in him if he sees his wife threatened. This is the kind of zeal and passion God has for you. And so, how does this play out? Oh my goodness, many ways, but here's one. So remember back in verse 1, he says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, it's upon these people that the light will shine first in the land of deep darkness. And so what, what God is promising to his people, in other words, is you were the first people who fell to the Assyrians and you carry a lot of shame. But also because of my zeal for you and my unwavering commitment to you, you are also going to be the first people who experience my honor and my glory because I remember your pain. Put another way, God is saying he's a God who remembers. So he remembers any, any single tear you've shed or any ache that's been inflicted on you with the greatest particularity. Even tears you've shed that you've forgotten about, God remembers. And it's his zeal that ensures he's going. He already has redeemed you and he will complete his redemption of you. And so... I think when God promises in the scriptures that he will wipe away every tear of yours, I think he means it. Like, like we read that passage all the time, but he, he actually means it. And he can't wait to do it. And the reason why you know he'll do it 
Why? How do, how do you know he's going to do it even when you do feel alone? Because on the cross, when Jesus, the light of the world, so it was the opposite for Jesus, right? He was the light, but on him was descending deep darkness. And as he was crying out, as he was in tears, he had no one to wipe away his tears. But yet he went through with it to be judged. And it wasn't just, not, it wasn't just the absence of comfort, but it was the active presence of God's wrath. Judging him for your sin so that you can have complete assurance that every single ache of yours and every single tear will be completely removed and completely wiped away. Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You know, when I asked my dad, hey, can we go back inside because I'm scared? Uh, You know what he did? He didn't say, Steve, you silly boy. There's no ghouls and ghosts in the trees coming out to get you. He didn't say, the the moon isn't scary. The moon isn't actually going to come and attack you. No, all he said was, hold my hand. Hold my hand and I'll bring you inside. And Jesus tells you the exact same thing. He says, following me doesn't mean that you won't be scared or that you won't feel like you're in pain or that you won't have longings. But what I do promise you is that you hold my hand and I'll carry you home. Let's go to God in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I just uh, want to thank you that you are a God who meets us in our darkness and you don't leave us alone. Uh, I thank you for this word from Isaiah speaking to a people so long ago, but yet it's still so relevant to, or at least just speaking for myself, it's very um, relevant and needed for me today. And so I pray that as we head into this Advent season, Lord, um, that we can shoulder one another's burdens with one another because you're a God who shoulders our burdens. And I pray also that more than darkness, uh, we see that we will see the light uh, because the advent of Jesus Christ is more about light than darkness. And we thank you so much for that. And may we experience it anew as we take communion and give of our tithes and offerings and sing our final couple songs. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.